0: Luke chapter 9. We've been, we've been working our way through, for, for the last several months now, we've been working our way through the gospel of Luke. And as we've mentioned throughout this series, Luke is is wanting his readers to know who, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We've seen story after story of people questioning and, and coming to terms with who Jesus is. We've, we've heard directly from Jesus about what it means to follow him. We, we read a couple weeks ago, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So he sort of turns everything upside down, right? He says, if you want to know who you are, you got to learn about me, not just about yourself. If you want to be empowered, if you want to feel like you are who you were made to be, you have to bear this cross on your back every day. This is Jesus himself, his own words, in talking about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a Christian. Last week, if you were with us, we read the story of Jesus' transfiguration. His transfiguration of the mountain, it's earlier in chapter 9. This is what some commentators would say the most significant event between Jesus' birth and his crucifixion. Thomas Aquinas would say this is the greatest miracle in the New Testament. This is the story of Jesus there on the mountaintop with his inner circle of disciples. He's there with Peter, James, and John. They are the three uh, inner circle of his 12 disciples. They are there on the mountain... And there is this scene on the mountain. They see Jesus literally transfigured from the inside out. The Shekinah glory of God emanating from Jesus. Not just passing by him like it did Moses, but literally coming from the inside out, transforming his face, transforming his clothes. Peter, uh, they're, they're kind of dozing at this point. Peter wakes up and he says, "Oh, my, I, I can't even believe what's happening. Lord, we need, to, we need to build three tents. We need to build a tent for you. We need to build a tent for Moses. We need to build a tent for Elijah. Jesus is having this conversation in glory with Moses, who's representing the law, with Elijah, who's representing the prophets. But just as Peter says, let's camp out here. Let's build a tent here to these three great men. The cloud comes, the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud of God. And from that cloud, a voice says, this is my chosen one. This is my son. Listen to this one. Moses and Elijah have gone now, but Jesus is here, remains. The glory cloud remains. The Shekinah is present. Listen to this man. This is, as we read, literally the epitome of a mountaintop experience, right? Right? This is God himself in all his glory, confirming definitively who Jesus is in all his power. But it's interesting because Luke makes a note, the stories in in Matthew, Mark uh, and Luke, and Luke makes this note that he, he comments on the conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah. And Luke says that that Jesus was talking with with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, about his departure. There's this sense that even in glory, even on the mountaintop, Jesus is considering, Jesus is contemplating, he is dwelling on. In fact, it's the subject of conversation here about the departure and deliverance that he would accomplish in Jerusalem like the cloud of glory that we read about in Exodus. I took you through uh, sort of the story of Exodus last week about this glory cloud. Just like that glory cloud of God, the the cloud of God's presence, the cloud of his glory, the cloud of his deliverance, the cloud of his guidance in Egypt, Jesus now, the embodiment of that Shekinah glory, will deliver his people through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. (coughs) Jesus had a mission to accomplish, and it wasn't to stay on the mountain. Jesus had a mission to accomplish, given to him by his Father, and it wasn't as tempting as it was, right? As maybe as rightful as it was for Jesus, his mission was not to stay on the mountaintop in glory, but to descend into the valley of our suffering. And this is where our story begins this morning in Luke chapter 9. It says there in verse 37, on this next day, so this is, this is them coming down the mountain. When they'd come down from the mountain after this great experience, it says a great crowd met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out and said, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. He says a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. He shatters him. This unclean spirit will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out. They couldn't. And Jesus answers, oh, o oh faithful, o, oh, oh, faithless and twisted generation. <clears throat> you faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? And he turns to the father and he says, bring your son to me. And even as the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground, convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy immediately and gave him back to his father. And it says, all were amazed, all were astonished at the majesty of God. And it says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, I want these words to sink deep into your ears the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they didn't understand this saying. It was concealed to them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. God, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. God, we thank you for its truth. We thank you for its power. God, I pray that that you would do your work through your word to transform our hearts. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This this story in the Gospel of Luke, this story, like several other stories that we've encountered in the Gospel of Luke, this is a a troubling story, isn't it? It's it's maybe especially grim and especially troubling if you're a parent. It's a story of great suffering, the, the great suffering of a child, Jesus descends the mountain. He descends his place of glory. He's immediately met by this this great and arguing crowd. And from the crowd, this man screams out, Jesus, come and help my son. He's, He's driven by an unclean spirit. It seizes him. He cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. That phrase there, it shatters him. It won't leave him. And I ask your disciples, but they could do nothing. The gospel writer, Matthew, this story too is in several of the gospels. The, the gospel writer, Matthew, will, he'll tell this story. and He makes note that this boy who, who we see is controlled by an unclean spirit, the unclean spirit will often cast him into fire and water. It's just there to torture him. It's just there to hurt this boy. In the gospel of Mark, the father adds, my son is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I'm glad this isn't my child. This, this boy is in terrible suffering. Ruled by an unclean spirit, riddled with seizures and convulsions. This is a boy, Mute except for his cries of agony. He's, he's foaming at the mouth. He's, he's repeatedly cast by these convulsions into fire or to water to drown him. He grinds his teeth. He's rigid. Luke says, the father says, it, it, when, it, when he says it shatters him, this is the idea of, of being bruised and scarred. So this is a kind of physical description. This is the result of these convulsions. Mark notes that this boy is not only mute, but he's deaf too. Are you getting a sense of this young boy? Are you getting a sense of if this were your child or your grandchild or even just someone, any child, right? This, this kid, can, he can feel the pain. He, he can see the scars and the bruises that are left from this unclean spirit controlling him, crushing him, shattering him, and yet he, he can't even be comforted by his father's voice. He's deaf and he's mute. He's, he's silenced in this very painful prison. And there his father is with his only, his only son, right? A dad trying to bring his boy to Jesus. The dad is there. Desperate. In fact, he's already tried some things. He's tried the disciples. They couldn't do anything. And so he comes to the master. And surprisingly, Jesus' response in that story is to rebuke the disciples, right? That's the next thing that Jesus does. The father is there. He's asking Jesus to intervene. Jesus, I need you to help me. I need you to save my boy. The disciples couldn't do it. God, I need your help. And Jesus then, he turns from the father, and he's looking at the disciples. The Gospels make made clear. He's, He's talking to them, plural. He's talking to the disciples, and he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to put up with you? This phrase uh, that Jesus actually uses repeatedly in the New Testament, this phrase or some variation of this phrase is borrowed from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, this song that Moses sings to the people of Israel just before Moses' death. Moses is there, he's he's transitioning uh, his power, he's about to die, and so he's giving his sort of one last speech in song to the people of Israel, and he says, I know you are rebellious and stiff-necked people. And you know what? You, you rebelled against God the whole time I was alive. And so how much worse is it going to be in my death? You are a crooked and twisted generation, Moses says. And he, of course he's right. Right. We've read the story, we, we know the story, the wandering, the rebellion, the idolatry. The, the Israelites are God's people, but they are a broken and rebellious people. The disciples here, the disciples are Jesus' people, but they are a flawed and faithless group. And so Jesus here condemns their unbelief. It's interesting that at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, when Jesus calls the disciples, when Jesus commissions the disciples out, he he says in verse 1, Jesus gave them the power and authority over all the demons, gave them power and authority to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal, and they departed and went through the villages, and they were doing that everywhere. They were preaching and healing everywhere. So it's strange, isn't it? They had been healing. They had been casting out demons before. So so what's going wrong now? Why can't they do it? Clearly there's a desperate need. This boy is hurting. This boy is in tremendous pain. His, His father is there begging for relief. One writer put it this way. Whatever has caused Jesus' emotions to swell in this moment, it is clear that the root of the apostles' powerlessness here was their unbelief. They didn't believe. Their failure was not because they did not try. In fact, they did try. They likely did their very best, no doubt repeatedly, probably using the same uh, techniques that were successful before for them, right? Their problem was that they had suddenly moved from trust in God to faith in the process, which is to say, faith in themselves. They said, like, we've got this, right? Right? Like we have we know this story, we've done this before, we have our technique, we, we know what we're doing, and Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed it. The disciples had drifted, just like we drift, right? They had drifted. It didn't happen overnight, but they had drifted from their their trust in God's faithfulness to a, to a trust in their own faithfulness. You see the difference? They were trusting in God's faithfulness to give them the power and the authority they needed. He was the source. He was their strength. But now they'd wandered off. They'd seen some success, right? They're like, we got this. And they go out and then they're completely powerless because they're not believing in God's faithfulness. They're believing in their own faithfulness. But, but their, their, their own faithfulness, their technique, their own behavior was powerless to restore this boy in such torment. So where are you at this morning? What are you trusting in? what are you what are you trusting in for for power or for success or for healing or for restoration or redemption to to quote jesus in luke chapter 8 where is your faith localize it where is it what are you what are you really believing in are you believing in the, the complete and finished and full work of Christ on the cross, that he gave you something that you could never get or earn on your own? Or are you believing in, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm kind of killing this. I think I've got it. Like, I've heard the stories. I believe. I, I get the Jesus thing. I know, you know, it's from him. But really, I'm good. In both the Gospel of uh, Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples—they—you they, don't see this in Luke, but in those other Gospels, those, the disciples get with Jesus, sort of on the side, and they say, "What's the deal? Why couldn't why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we heal this boy? We've been healing before, we've been casting out demons before. Why now?" And Jesus responds to them in both Matthew and in Mark, and He says. This kind, this kind of unclean spirit, this situation, this healing can only come about through prayer and fasting, which is interesting, right? So it's, it's not, Jesus is saying, in other words, it's not about, it's not about your smarts. It's not, about, it's not about your experience, what you've, what you've seen in the past, what has worked for you in the past. It's not about your resources. It's not even about your technical obedience. It's about this, this desperate dependence, this clinging to Jesus through prayer. There really is something to a desperate spiritual poverty, Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they need saving. There really is something to this, this palpable assurance in your life that if, if God doesn't intervene, then we really have no hope. I'm understanding even like on a really practical level. Uh, I think we were talking about this. We're, I have a theology group on Tuesday mornings, and I think we were talking a little bit about this, but I'm... I'm Beginning, and I, I've been a Christian, you know, most of my life, and I'm I'm just I'm beginning to realize more and more on a really practical level um, how how useful prayer is. There's this sense, you know, as the as the New Testament writers put, um, that we are we are casting our anxieties on Him, which is a beautiful image. We're casting our cares upon him. We're casting our worries upon him, all of our insecurities upon him. And and how do you do that? You do that through prayer, through honest prayer. You you sit with the man and you say, I don't know how I'm going to sort this out. I need you to sort it out. I don't know how I'm going to deal with all this. I don't know how I can deal with this, this fear or this pain, this insecurity, this struggle, this sin. God, I'm trusting. I'm having to give it to you because I don't know how to sort it out. And he says, in this moment, there's nothing you could do except for pray and fast. There's nothing you could do except for experience your own spiritual poverty. In his book on the gospel, Ray Ortland. In fact, I have a copy of this book back there. It's on the back table. First come, first serve. You can grab it. It's a little green book. In that book called The Gospel, the writer says this. Here then are the choices that we face, moment by moment. Will we aim to be impressive? Will we expect to be in complete control? Will we we ensure that we will always come out on top? Or will we be happy for the power of Christ to rest upon us in our endless weakness? He goes on to say, this is a quote, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever. And that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You can't have it both ways. Martin Luther famously put it this way such, so succinctly. I'm going to pray and I'm going to let God worry. That's going to be my technique, right? I'm going to pray and I'm going to let God worry about it. You can see the contrast between um, the confidence of the disciples and the desperation of the Father, right? The disciples thought, like this, we've, done, we've done this before, we know this, we've seen success in our past, so we're, we're ready for this, Honor. they're trusting now in themselves and not in the power of God. They're, they're, there's confidence with the disciples, but an utter desperation from the father. The, the reality is that both are desperate, the disciples just don't know it. In Mark, there's this exchange at this point between uh, the father of this boy and Jesus and the father asks Jesus listen to this the father asks Jesus in the midst of this uh, terror in the midst of the failure of the disciples he, he goes to Jesus he says Jesus if you can will have compassion on us and help us if you can and you know what Jesus' response to him is if I can that's what it says there, you can read it for yourself in Mark chapter 9. What do, you, what do you mean, if I can? If I can, yes, I can. Yes, I can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And it says that immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, and you may remember this, I believe. But help my unbelief. Because it's right there, too. It's right there, too. I believe God, but help help my unbelief. The Father, here's the point. The Father has no faith in his faith. His, his faith is in the Father. His faith is in the Lord. His faith is in Christ. It's not in his own faith or faithfulness. He's now thrust himself on the mercy of Christ. He says, I believe Jesus, but here's the truth I also doubt. I do believe, I want to believe, but but... My, my faith is imperfect. I'm riddled with doubts. I got doubts all the time about all kinds of stuff, God. I do believe, and, and hopefully you know you can be honest with yourself and say, you have experienced this tension, right? I do believe. God, I do believe you. I do believe your word. I do believe what you've said to me and promised me, what you've, what you've worked in my life all these years. And yet still, if I'm honest, I got a lot of doubts. I got a lot of doubts. My faith is not in my faith, God. I want my faith to be in you. Help my unbelief. I struggle with disbelief. Help my unbelief. And then Jesus says, bring me your son. Bring him here. And and even even in this moment, even as Jesus calls this boy to himself, even then the demon throws him to the ground. The the Greek word that's used there is, is the same word that is used for like wrestlers and boxers when they just slam somebody down on the mat. That's what the demon, that's what this unclean spirit does to this boy. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and immediately the boy is healed. And he's given back to his father instantly and wholly healed and it says there in verse 43 and all were astonished at the majesty of God and who wouldn't be right they're seeing this I mean even in that moment the demon is throwing this boy to the ground you can see him covered in bruises and scars him him mute but you can see it in his eyes how terrified he is he can't hear you and now in an instant from a word from Jesus He's healed. One writer says that the same majesty that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain with Jesus in his glory, now the rest of the people are seeing his majesty and power in the midst of suffering. One commentator says how infinite is the competence of Jesus. This boy was not half healed. But he was made completely whole. The Lord restored this boy's mind. The Lord restored this boy's hearing. He restored his speech, his body. He restored his boyhood. He restored his hopes and his father's. And he he gave him faith. And then handed him over to his dad. Unlike the story of the transfiguration this story doesn't end in glory but in suffering he, he says I want these words to sink into your ears in verse 44 the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and he gets even clear about this in Matthew Mark to be killed he says you saw you saw my glory on the mountain you saw my power in this moment in the valley with this boy This is where it's headed. It's not headed back up to the mountain. It's headed to the cross. This is what you need to understand. Jesus had a mission to accomplish. And it wasn't to stay on the mountain in glory. It was to descend into our suffering. Not only the suffering in the valley of these earthly sorrows, which he does. He is present with us in our sorrows. But to descend uh, into the spiritual suffering, the spiritual rejection, the spiritual humiliation, the the pain, the contempt of the cross for us. Here's, Here's the point, church. Jesus left his glory, his perfect, complete glory in heaven to enter into our suffering. That's why he did it. It's not about what we could do to get to him. It's about what he did at great cost to get to us. He left his glory to enter into our suffering so that through his suffering, we might enter into his glory. That's the story of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. Peter, who again witnessed both this transfiguration on the mountain and also witnessed this experience with Jesus healing in the valley. He'll say in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Don't be surprised at that. Some of us are surprised, right? When things start to fall apart, when things don't go right, it seems like a shock. Especially if things have been going all right for a while. Don't be surprised at the fiery trouble when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. instead rejoice rejoice in so far that you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. it's to both hand, right? Today is the day to take up your cross, church. He is calling you. He is, he is beckoning you. He, he, knows, he knows all the things that we want to keep hidden from him. And God knows there's a lot of things we want to keep hidden. But he says, I know you. I love you. And look what I did to get to you. So take up your cross now and follow me. To share in the sufferings of Christ that we might one day also share in his glory. What does that mean? What does it it mean to take up your cross? And I I think that's a worthwhile question for us to ask ourselves. What does it mean for us to take up our cross? I think it means, uh, among many other things, it means to bear one another's burdens. And if you hadn't noticed, there are people burdened all around you. A lot of times we just zero in on our own Struggles on our own fiery trials. And we forget that this, this world is filled with people bearing heavy burdens. And so taking up our cross in the same way that Jesus took up his cross is in a certain way to bear one another's burdens, to mourn with those who mourn. It, it, it may mean accepting and embracing um, some sacrificial calling that Jesus has placed in your life. take up your cross. And let me encourage you church, put your faith in Christ, not in your faithfulness. Because you know what happens if you have faith if you have faith in your faithfulness, it just won't be long at all until you realize, I'm not that faithful. And then you're just crushed under the guilt and shame and confusion, and doubt. When you believe in yourself, you will disappoint yourself. But If you say, I'm not, I'm not trusting in my faithfulness, I'm trusting in God's faithfulness, I'm not trusting in my goodness, I'm trusting in His goodness, then you can rest. In glory or in suffering, you can know you will be with Him.